rest of us can turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans 3 in your New Testament. If you have a Bible with you, if you don't, we will have scripture projected onto the screen behind me. And uh, we're going to uh, have part two of a study we started last week called the DNA of the gospel. Contained in Romans 3 is amazingly densely packed information about our Savior and about what he's done for us, all about the gospel. Just kind of like the DNA molecule in every cell in your body uh, contains information about you and, uh, and who you were to become. So uh, we're going to study it for that reason. Um, let me pray, then we'll read uh, our text, first of all. Oh Lord, been a lot of talking here. We just want to quiet our hearts and tune our hearts to the voice of your spirit and set our eyes on the words of the scriptures and ask that you would be our teacher and speak to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Romans 3, slide number 1. <coughs> we'll read uh, verses uh, 19 to 26. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. But now, but now, but now. Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. And he did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. <clears throat> Sometimes when you read through that, you, you kind of go, if, if you were asked, did you understand that? I would have said, uh, yes and no. And uh, that's why we need to dig into it, I think, and uh, seek to understand what is being communicated here in this passage. Up until the end of verse 20, uh, it had been established, and we talked about it last week, that uh, there is no one righteous, not even one. We've all gone astray. Isaiah 53 says each of us has turned to his own way, and we, we are laden with our own sins and our own rebellion, and, uh, and we need a Savior. We need to be saved. I asked uh, what was the one requirement we needed to enter God's heaven, and, uh, and stated that it is righteousness, and there is none righteous. We don't have our own righteousness. Where are we to get righteousness? The Jewish people thought you get it by keeping the law. The law was huge in their, in their understanding and in their faith. Uh, and, uh, and so they endeavored to keep the law, which is fine and good. But the law, we discovered, cannot save us. 
It can only tell us we need saving. It cannot save us and cleanse us. It can only make us conscious of our uncleanness, of our sin. And so I left you there last week, sorry about that, sort of in a hopeless state saying, what are we going to do? But the, the next two words uh, in, in verse 21, the words, but now. So we've, uh, we've, we've been in a bad place, and it seems like, what are we going to do? We're doomed. There's no hope. And then Paul changes everything when he says, there is hope, but now he's going to tell us something really important. <clears throat> I think we are... Verse 21. <clears throat> Let's just go through it phrase by phrase. But now, something is changing. Apart from the law. What? Every Jew would say, no, there's, no, there's nothing apart from the law. The law is everything. Paul, who was a Jew, said no, there is something apart from the law. In fact, this is very important. He says, apart from the law, the righteousness of God, that's what we need, remember? The righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. So there is some other basis of righteousness apart from the law. What is it? Okay, he's going to announce the gospel here. The righteousness of God has been made known. Notice past tense, has been made known. He doesn't say, will someday be made known. It has been. And where was that righteousness of God made known and brought into the world? At the cross of Christ. We'll, go, we'll say this 10 times this morning. Uh, but it has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. So the law couldn't bring us righteousness. The prophets, which is all the Old Testament stuff, couldn't bring us righteousness. They're just sort of standing there staring. The law and the prophets. Imagine them as sort of two individuals. And they're testifying. They're, they're just looking on at another source of righteousness which they weren't able to deliver. What are they looking at? The cross of Christ. We need to dig into this more deeply. So Paul goes on to say, uh, this righteousness is given through faith. Where does this righteousness come from? How can I have it? It is, it is uh, given through faith. Notice the word given. It's not worked for. It's given. It's not achieved. It's received like a gift, a gift of grace. The Christian gospel says we're saved by grace. It's the gift of God. Here he says it in this passage. This righteousness is given, how? Through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. We'll come back a little later and talk about faith and what exactly does that mean when we put faith in Christ. Then he goes on to say, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. And every Jewish person in the room would go, time out, time out. There is a difference between Jew and Gentile. We're Jews and we're better. And Paul is saying, there is no difference. <clears throat> we're all, he says, going on, for all Jew and Gentile have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is the most famous verse about our universal sinfulness in all of the scripture. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Glory of God, what does that mean? That's just God's righteous and holy and pure standard. And it is his glory. <clears throat> Since we live in such a fallen world, we don't comprehend what that glory is like. 
Someday we shall absolutely see it and live there if we are in Christ. But he says here at this point, we sinners, Jews and Gentiles alike, fall short of the glory of God. In other words, that standard we don't reach. We're way below it, and that is why we need saving. Verse 24, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So let's look at slide number three now. And the question before us is, <clears throat> so God is going to give us righteousness. He's going to give us the righteousness of God. He's going to give it through faith in Jesus Christ. What is it about Jesus Christ and what he has done that we put our faith in that, that all this sort of works out? And uh, so let's wrestle with that for a minute. In slide three, you will notice four words are emphasized or highlighted in that slide. There's the word justified, there's the word redemption, and there's the words sacrifice of atonement, and then there's the word grace. Each of those words, justified, redemption, and sacrifice of atonement, are humongously big, important words. Excuse my English. First of all, the word justified. We have been justified freely by his grace. Justified, verse, slide four coming up. Justified is a legal term, and the result of being justified is righteousness. <clears throat> Redemption is a term from the slave market of that culture, and the result of being redeemed is freedom from slavery, and the sacrifice of atonement is a term from the sacrificial practices and culture of the Jewish people, and the result of the sacrifice of atonement is peace with God, and I'll explain that in a moment. Back to justified. To be justified in theological terms and what it means in the New Testament and in the gospel is that we are if we are justified by God, we are declared not guilty of our sins anymore. But not only are we not guilty, that's, we're not the negative thing, we are also a positive thing. And that means we are declared righteous by God. And we wonder, how is this possible? <clears throat> Here's how it works. God now sees you differently. And it's how he sees us that's important. He sees you through the lens of his son on the cross. It changes everything. He sees, you, uh, he sees your sin on Jesus. And he sees the righteousness of Jesus imputed to you and me. And this exchange happens when we put our faith in Christ as our savior. He sees you as righteous if there were no cross, he couldn't see us that way. We owe all this to Jesus and what he has done for us. That is a very brief and very inadequate explanation of justification, but uh, that is, in summary, what it is. We are declared not only not guilty, but we are declared righteous in the sight of God because he sees us now through Christ and what he has done. It's all because of Christ. The word redemption. 
I said it's a slave market term and it results in freedom. And in the days of the New Testament, sometimes sad situation, but slaves were put up on auction and they were bought and sold by masters. And uh, we have been transferred from being the slaves of one master to the kingdom and family of God. Paul even calls God our master, but what a good master he is. Loves us enough to do what he did for us and receives us into his family. We were enslaved to sin. We were captives of the devil. We were enslaved to guilt and guilty consciences. We were enslaved to the fear of death, but we've been purchased, bought and paid for by the price of the blood of Jesus, and we've been freed from all those old masters. Sometimes when I'm having my own personal devotional time or quiet time and I'm trying to worship some, you know, sometimes it's hard to just crank up worship. (laughs) What should I say this morning? Um, But I like to think of these terms and turn them into worship. I like to think of the fact that I've been justified because of the work of Christ and that he has conferred upon me a righteousness which I didn't deserve, but it is so. And I, I, I think and I work on the word justified and I praise God for what he's done for me and what that term means. And then I think of redemption and I think of being set free and, 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 and now, I'm, now I'm in God's family and I've been set free from the slavery to sin and guilt and death and the fear of death and the devil and all those things and I, I worship and praise God again. And then the third term here, I, I do the same thing. The third term is sacrifice of atonement. As I said, it's a sacrificial term. Atonement, of course, is a very Jewish term. Remember Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the biggest day in the whole year of the Jewish calendar? And, uh, and so the sacrifice of atonement results in peace. Another word that some translations of Scripture in the New Testament use is propitiation, that Christ is a propitiation or he is a sacrifice of atonement. At the heart of this concept are two words. One word is appeasement and the other word is satisfaction can't tell you what it meant to me when I finally read some good material and understood what this meant. What was appeased? We speak of appeasing someone's anger. What was appeased? God's wrath upon sin was appeased. What was satisfied? Same answer. God's wrath upon sin was satisfied. God's wrath is only satisfied when it is fully expressed. And fully, you might say, pour it out. And it's poured out on the person associated with the sin. But in the gospel, it is Jesus who is now associated with my sin, not me. That's what it means when it says, he took my place. He died for sinners. He died for me. He has associated himself with my sin. It's not that he committed any sin, but he has allowed God to view him as though he did commit all of our sin. And God's wrath is then poured out. He has substituted himself in my place. The wrath is poured out completely and is thus satisfied, but the wrath struck down Jesus, not me. He died for me. Sometimes we sing uh, a hymn, a fairly modern hymn by Keith Getty and Stuart Townend. Uh, It says, Till on that cross... As Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. There's that word. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live. 
These words describe the finished work of Christ in having made a sacrifice of atonement which satisfies the wrath of God. And in him and his finished work, we place our faith. It all happened at the cross. The result is peace with God. At our cottage, sometimes, everywhere, the thunderstorms happen. And um, I remember one particular big storm that, that blew by um, our cottages up in Tobermory. It blew through, and it was a wild afternoon, and uh, the trees were bending, and the massive, amazing clouds were rolling around in the sky, and there lightning and noise and thunder, and, and uh, I, I like storms. Uh, when it, but when it was all over, as long as they're not, like, hitting me, uh, but um, when it was all over, though, the, I, I took some photos on my phone. I can show them to you later, but from, from the deck of our cottage, the, the sky was filled with this orange pink hue of color. There was no wind. All was still. Raindrops were dripping from the leaves of the trees. And it was such a feeling of the storm had passed and peace was here. That's what the result is because of the propitiation that Christ made on the cross. Because he satisfied the wrath of God, it was fully extended. There's no wrath left, only peace between the believer in Jesus and God. It's an amazing term, worthy of worship. Slide five. Let's read Romans 3, 25 to 26 and talk a little bit about faith. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be, notice, received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Just a quick word on that. The sins that were committed in the era before Christ in the Old Testament were God covered them through the animal sacrifices, but they were not fully punished. It was only an arrangement until the cross, until God would pour out all of his wrath upon his son to punish and pay for all the sins, past, present, and future. So that's what Paul's getting at there. He's saying now they have been punished. Uh, he did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time. The righteousness being God could have been charged with, you skipped over some sins, and God is saying, I did not. And the cross is the proof that he did. At the present time, so as to be just, and the one who justifies those, here it is again, those who have faith in Jesus. You know, faith, what does it mean to have faith in Jesus? Faith isn't just for religious people. Atheists have faith as well. They say, oh, you religious people, you have faith, but I have science or something like that. And yet everybody exercises faith all the time in their life. For example, when you, uh, okay, down at Niagara Falls, there's this big bridge that goes over the gorge down below at, I don't know, 100 or some feet high. And you drive over the bridge. And uh, uh, why, why would you ever do that? I mean, you say, well, I, I trust the bridge. Right? I have faith. What is that faith? Let's think about it. It is faith in the competence of the engineers who designed the bridge, and it's faith in the workers who built the bridge such that you will drive your car over a 100-foot space underneath you down where the whirlpool is at the bottom. And you do that without even thinking. But it's faith. It's trust. Faith is trust. 
Or you get on a plane to go fly somewhere and you're up uh, 35,000 feet and you have, you got on that plane because you have faith in the plane's designers and the engineers and the builders of the plane and the pilot who is flying the plane. <clears throat> or you go to the dentist and you're going to get a root canal. <clears throat> Has anyone ever given yourself a root canal? No, because we'd really mess ourselves up if we tried. You surrender yourself into the hands of a person who you believe and trust to be competent, professional, and skillful. And if you don't believe that, don't go to that dentist. In each case, though, you trust... Here's the general statement. In each case, you trust someone else, bridge builder, pilot, dentist, whom you believe to be qualified and competent to do something for you that you can't do for yourself. You can't get over that gorge. You can't fly from here to England. You can't uh, do your own root canal. You're trusting someone else with the qualifications to do that for you completely and well done. And uh, when I put my faith in Christ, I'm trusting someone to be qualified and competent to do something for me that I can't do for myself. To cleanse me of my sins, I can't do that for myself. To set me free from the fear of death, can't do that. To remove my sin and place upon me the righteousness of God and to appease the devastating wrath of God, I can't do that. I trust that he can. You know what? You know that scenario where I stand in front of God and I hope to enter heaven and he asks me, why should I let you in? I might not say anything. I might just point. And everybody looks, who's he pointing at? It's Christ. It's Jesus, my Savior. And my faith is in him, not in myself. Slide seven. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Notice, just and the one who justifies God had, if I could put it this way, a bit of a problem in the salvation story. God is just and righteous and therefore must pour out his wrath on and punish sin. But as we know, God is also loving in ways we cannot even fathom the love that he has for us. And so the problem is this. Here's the sinner, and if I am just, I must pour out my wrath on the sinner and send him or her to hell apart from my presence. But if I am wholly, totally loving and sort of forget the justice part, then I will invite that sinner into my heaven. Sin and all. Woohoo! Ain't gonna work. If he sticks to his justice, I can't be saved. If he practices only his love and and, and, and compromises his justice, heaven won't be heaven. What's the answer to this dilemma that God has? How could he possibly save us? It looks like he can't. We should be knowing by now that the answer to this seemingly impossible dilemma is found again in the gospel and that at the center of the gospel is none other than Jesus Christ. He and he alone allowed for God to be both just and to fully punish sin and at the same time 
allowed for God to be fully loving, to express that love, to invite me into his family, forgiven completely. This is all through the finished work of Christ. Two quotes here, one from a theologian named uh, Bengal, and he said about this God being just and the justifier, how can you be both? He said, the supreme this is the supreme paradox of the gospel. And Scottish theologian William Barclay writes, Paul never in his life said a more startling thing than this, that God could be both. How? Christ. The wrath was poured out on Christ. The love was extended to me. And uh, I am able to be saved and God is able to fully punish sin. One more thing before we close. Slide six. Verse 25, 26. <clears throat> I'll just read the first four or five words. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. Notice the word presented. God presented Christ as a sacrifice. That's the NIV speaking translation. The New American Standard translation says God displayed Christ publicly. A public display of something or a presentation of something. And uh, some of you use the English Standard Version, which says God put forward Christ as a sacrifice. So he presented him, he publicly displayed him, he put him forward for all to see. The translators struggled with uh, uh, translating this particular word. The Greek word is pro-tethemi. Two words, pro and tethemi. Pro means before, and tethemi means to set or place or put down. So God set or placed Christ before the universe at the cross. There he is. The bottom line here is the importance of the very public nature of the cross. Nothing was done in secret. I'll give you a little illustration. Uh, I saw a movie a few years ago called The Green Book. Maybe some of you have seen it. And uh, the gist of the story is of a, it's a good movie. The gist of the story is a, an African-American classical pianist named uh, Sir, uh, Dr. Don Shirley was his name. It's based on a true story. And uh, <clears throat> he was very accomplished, but he was going to take his music and do concerts in the deep south of the U.S. back in the segregation days. And, uh, and uh, he knew that he might not be well received, and so he hired... Uh, a guy named Tony, and uh, Tony was a former bouncer and uh, kind of just a general all-around tough guy, except Tony's a good guy. We all, we all like him in the movie. And Tony's job was to, was to protect and watch out for Don Shirley as he did his concerts and traveled from here to there. And uh, <clears throat> Tony at first didn't like Don Shirley at all. By the end of the movie, he absolutely loves the guy. But uh, there was an incident in the, in the story where somebody was giving Don Shirley, the, the pianist, a hard time, hassling him. And, uh, and so Don Shirley talked to Tony, like, can we do something about this? And uh, later that evening, Tony goes somewhere and he comes back and uh, Don Shirley asks him about it. And Tony says in his gangster voice, I took care of it. 
And we all know what I took care of it means, right? That poor sucker won't be uh, causing trouble anymore. But we don't know what happened. This is different. Not only did God take care of it, but it's very important that we all know what happened. And so thus God presented Christ, set him forth, publicly portrayed him as the sacrifice of atonement for our sins. In so doing, when God did that, he's declaring three things to the universe. Look at that cross. Number one, this is how horrible sin is. Number two, this is how just I am. And he's displaying Christ to Satan and the demons and the angels and all the human race and anybody else. If I've forgotten anybody. This is how horrible sin is. This is how just I am. And this is how much I love you. Is what God is saying as he presents Christ to the universe. In Joshua chapter 5 in the Old Testament... Joshua, had, there's this incident where the captain of the Lord's host, in other words, a mighty, fearsome angel, stands in front of Joshua and he has a message for him. And the first thing he says to Joshua is, take your shoes off, this is holy ground. And Joshua very quickly did so. In Exodus chapter 3 in the Old Testament, Moses comes across a burning bush and God speaks out of the bush. This is the presence of God. And the first thing that God says to Moses is, Moses, take your sandals off. This is holy ground, and Moses did so. Brothers and sisters, if only in our minds, let's take our shoes off this morning. This is holy ground. Let's pray. Oh Lord, you are a holy God, and you are a loving God, and this is true, and this is so good. As we stand before the cross of our Savior, our feeble and finite human minds struggle to comprehend how deep and wide, how long and high is your love. We struggle to comprehend your grace and your mercy. We pray that you would infuse the beauty and the immensity of your gospel deeper and deeper into our hearts and that it would produce faith, unshakable faith, in someone who has done something for us that we can't do for ourselves. And may it produce worship that never ends. Amen. Let's stand together.